Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to another Larry Huck Ministries podcast. We pray this teaching will fill you with God's wisdom, anointing, and revelation knowledge. Thank you for your prayers and faithful support. standing with Israel, we're standing against anti-Semitism that's raising its ugly head all over the world. You know, for those that maybe you're visiting here and you say, man, these folks at New Beginning are loud. We need to be louder than the pro-Hamas and louder than the pro-Palestinian, and we need to make our voices heard loud and clear, never again. Somebody shout amen. We're going to, right now, honor both of our nations, and we're going to sing first the National Anthem of America, and then we're going to sing Hatevah for uh, the National Anthem of Israel. So Talia's going to come and sing, and then we're going to have the Hatevah. Give her a big hand as she comes. Amen. Thank you, sweetheart. Rabbi, are you, will you come and uh, 
sing Israeli's national anthem words, Rabbi. Give him a great big round because he comes out. Good friend of ours. Thank you, Rabbi. You may take your seat. Um, we're going to introduce some special guests in just a moment. But before we do, we have a very, very special guest that is speaking to us live through Zoom, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. There's a saying that says everybody needs a rabbi. And... Rabbi Daniel is our rabbi. He's my rabbi. He's been a friend for, he and Susan, for 30 years. Um, probably the smartest man. I don't let him teach too much because then you realize where I get all my revelation. <laughs> he is a brilliant scholar, a dear friend, loves the unity between Jews and Christians. Rabbi, it's so good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us this morning as we do a Christian-Jewish standing in solidarity. They're doing a split screen. That's why I'm looking this way. And so on TV, it's a split screen. Rabbi, you, got, you and Susan were in Israel on October 7th. Can you explain what you saw, what you feel... Where's your heart at since October 7th and where we're at standing with Israel and defeating Hamas today? Well, the context, I think, is, is very important. Uh, yes, we, we were in Efrat, and uh, it, it quickly became apparent that something unusual was happening. And during the course of the day, we gradually became aware of just how serious it was. But, um, Pastor Larry, what was going through my heart 
was the realization that uh, exactly 14 years ago today, just down the road from where you all sit, Army, U.S. Army Major Nidal Malik Hassan massacred 13 people on the Fort Hood base. Yeah. That was 14 years ago. Yeah. And that came through my mind because I realized that a line can be drawn from November the 5th, 2009 to October the 7th, 2023. And I realized that a line can be drawn back from November the 5th, 2009, and a line can be drawn back from October the 7th, 2023, all the way back to when the notorious Muslim fleet that had been terrorizing Europe and pirating the Mediterranean for 100 years, that fleet was destroyed by a combined Christian fleet on November, on October the 7th, 1571. And I realized there was a line as we watched the rockets fall on Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas on October the 7th, 2023. I realized that this was merely a continuation of the titanic struggle between barbarism and civilization. That's right. And it goes back to October the 7th, 1571, when the combined Muslim fleets suffered a great defeat in the Gulf of Lepanto between Italy and Greece. And those were the thoughts I realized that although I was in the middle of a new war zone, I knew that it was actually an ongoing battle in the Titanic struggle. It was a small part of it, a painful part of it, a part of it that will cause tears forever, a part we mourn today. Today is 30 days, and there's a traditional three-part period of mourning yeah. in the Torah. We mourn a certain deep level of mourning for seven days after the loss. We mourn another period, a full 30 days after the loss. And today, we're all lighting candles. These are called Yizkor candles, candles of remembrance, because it has just gone sunset in Israel and the 30th day since October the 7th has just begun. And we're commemorating that. Amen. And so to answer your question, Pastor Larry, uh, there's a timeless aspect to it. Um, it is something much bigger that we're aware of than the events of October the 7th, as unbelievable as they are. Rabbi, last week I taught here in the building. Every Sunday we've been doing a live link up with someone in Israel, whether it's a government official. Last week, we had a mother who her and her husband uh, and two children survived. Uh, uh, thankfully, her husband was a police officer. They had guns down there by one of the kibbutz, and they were able to survive for eight hours. But she said when they came out, the things they saw 
what had happened to not soldiers. These weren't soldiers. These were families, little children, women. The things they saw were beyond barbarism. They were beyond, it was beyond brutality. And we've shared these. We haven't shown the pictures. I've seen pictures every, almost every day that Israel sends me 5.30 in the morning. This is not a war against the people. This is war against the spirit of Amalek. And we talked last week about the spirit of Amalek, and you're the best at it. Could you just share a little bit about what that is and, and why this has to be defeated? Yes. Um, the, there are battles in which the army needs to be defeated, and that is the end. Uh, World War II ended in Europe with the surrender, the unconditional surrender of Germany. And a few months later, World War II ended in the Pacific with the unconditional surrender of Japan. Now, prior to that time, in February and March of 1945, General Curtis LeMay inflicted a firebombing on many Japanese cities. In Tokyo alone, 100,000 people died as firestorms ravaged through the cities, sucking up the oxygen and causing a conflagration such as had never been seen. That did not bring about the surrender of Japan. It took Hiroshima and then Nagasaki in August of that year to bring about the surrender. And as soon as the surrender had taken place, Douglas MacArthur arrived in Japan to set up an occupational government and essentially to restore and rebuild Japan. Germany surrendered, and again, the United States set up plans to help rebuild Germany. That is what happens when a conventional war is being fought. But when the battle is Amalek, and we have to remember that Amalek shows up as the Hebrews leave Egypt, a raggedy band of former slaves making their way into the great unknown, into the fearfulness of the lonely expanse of the desert, That, according to the book of Exodus, that is when Amalek strikes, and he struck the weakest. He struck at the elderly people and the women and the children. Yeah. It's a totally different thing. And God's response is, Timcher et Zecher Amalek. You have to obliterate the entire memory of Amalek, every last shred of Amalek, man, woman, and child. Because this is not an army fighting for domination, as the Japanese were. It's not an army fighting for world domination like the Germans were. Amalek fights to destroy everybody else and to inflict pain and suffering It is an evil deeply embedded in the culture. And for that, obliteration is the only hope for civilization. 
Amen. And we know, we know that there are certain characteristics of Amalek that are revealed in the book of Judges and are revealed in the book of Esther. In the book of Judges, we find King Agag and King Saul goes to war with him. And the next day, Samuel has to himself slaughter King Agag. And yet later on in the book of Esther, we discover Haman, Amen. another Amalekite, descended from Agag, mentioned explicitly in the book of Esther, again tries to destroy the Jewish people. And again, unfortunately, the only answer when it is so culturally embedded, it's not the army. You know, you, 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 you would have found Japanese living in many parts of Japan who were faithful to their emperor in 1944 and 1943, but who harbored no individual animus towards Americans. In fact, we realize that the, uh, uh, the imprisonment and the internment of Japanese Americans turned out to have been a wrong. There were many Germans who just wanted the war to end because hatred of the Allies was not embedded in Japan. However, when it comes to Amalek, hatred of the West, hatred of Israel, and hatred of the religious offshoot of, of Israel, the daughter of Judaism, Christianity, is deeply, deeply in the culture. That deep loathing and implacable hatred is in the culture. It's not relatively benign by only being in the military. And that's why it is that uh, in November 2015, Islamic uh, jihadists struck the Bataclan Theater in Paris and killed 90 people. Right. And it's why in July 2005, Islamic jihadists struck the London subway system and killed 52 people. And it's, it's why it was that, uh, that in, uh, in the 700s, the Muslims that had spread into Spain and Portugal in an attempt to obliterate Christianity decided to move northwards and to take over France and essentially destroy the Christian West, destroy Christian Europe from the Western side. And it was only the heroic defiance of Charles Martel in 732 that prevented the Muslim takeover and killing of all European Christians. But you know, religion grants us all long memories, Pastor Larry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for my Christian brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive today as he ever was. And to we Jews, we daily conduct our affairs today and yesterday and tomorrow, just as Moses instructed 3,300 right. years ago. That's right. We have a long memory. The past is important to us and the future is important to us. And the same is true for Islam. And so it's not surprising that uh, Islam came back for another crack at Christianity, this time from the east. And marching west from Constantinople, 
they took over large parts of Eastern Europe until they reached the gates of Vienna in 1683. And it was there that the Christian forces said, enough, and they banded together armies from Christian Poland and armies from the Pope in Italy and armies from elsewhere joined together and finally inflicted a defeat on the Muslim forces outside the walls of Vienna in the year 1683. What date? September the 11th. That's right. That's right. 9-11. That's right. And it was when it was time for them to come back and take another crack at the Christian West, they chose 9-11. Yep. And when it came time for them to take another crack at the Jewish civilization, they chose October the 7th, presumably to commemorate or to take advantage of or to avenge themselves on the defeat that was inflicted on them on October the 7th, 1571 in the Gulf of Lepanto. Right. So yes, when our children and our grandchildren, God willing, will read the history of the 21st century, they will read of a titanic struggle between civilization and barbarism. And they will understand, they will understand two things. They will understand, number one, that civilization is nothing more than the Judeo-Christian Bible vision of society projected onto a national screen. They will understand that everything we think of as civilization and everything that makes people from all parts of the world flock to immigrate legally or illegally into societies that were created by Christendom, all of those things, those qualities, the replacing of violence with voting and bullets with ballots, the place for women other than merely the objects of men, the idea of trade and interaction, the ideas of the social gathering and political structure, all flowing, the idea of three parts of government, the judiciary and the uh, executive and the, uh, the uh, legislative, all out of the book of Isaiah. All of that is civilization. And they will understand that what we're witnessing is one more in a long sequence of violent attacks from barbarism against civilization. Amen. And this is the defining titanic struggle of the 21st century. Rabbi, and they will only be able to sit in their towns and villages around this country and in other good countries around the world, they will only be able to do that because civilization triumphed over barbarism. Amen. And God willing, in God's good time, as civilization will triumph over bar barbarism, it will be, Pastor Larry, because of the holy work done by you and your family, you and New Beginnings Church, and you and all the other good Christians standing shoulder to shoulder with their Jewish allies. As we know, our sacred talk possible. Amen. Rabbi, let me ask you one more question. Uh, you know, you, you, you've known me for 30 years. I'm not from the church world, I'm from the streets. And so I don't conduct myself as a, a reverend too often. And in fact, uh, one of the guys that have me a shirt made says, half hood, half holy. And uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit different, but 
it, it angers me. It really, really makes me mad to see the demonstrations that are going on around the world and in America, in our own country, uh, in Washington, D.C., of pro-Hamas, to see people in our government flying Palestinian Hamas flags after these butchers, these these barbaric animals. And I, I apologize to my church last week for calling Hamas animals because that's an insult to animals because animals don't act that way towards other animals. This is beyond barbaric. And we tell our people, stay off the, get your, get your kids off of social media, but you need to go look and see what happened. And you will understand that this is bar, barbarism, uh, it's demonic, it's, it's butchery. But what makes me a little angry, Rabbi, and, and address this w- with the last question is, why aren't we in America being louder? Why aren't Jews being louder? Why aren't Christians being louder? Why aren't we out in the street? And how important is it right now that Jews and Christians come together and make our voice heard and make it be heard very loud? Pastor Larry, I, uh, I would love to be able to offer cheerful bromides and kumbayas about how we shall overcome. Yeah, that's right. But it's not so simple. One really has to question the time-honored American political tradition of rallies and protests and demonstrations. And we have to really ask ourselves how much they truly accomplish, you see. Because one of the things we have to remember is that the barbarism we saw on October the 7th is not unique in the annals of the world. It is the same barbarism, very, very similar practices that were inflicted on American sailors that caused the American government to send Lieutenant Decatur to to vanquish and subdue the Barbary Pirates. They were called the Barbary Pirates because they were barbaric. Nothing much has changed. And here's the tough thing to understand. This is hard, but I'm going to tell you anyway because we all need to absorb this into our souls. There are some barbarians that take knives and rip open the bellies, and I don't have to go any further. Right. But there are other barbarians that wear suits and ties. There are other barbarians who are on the university campus as students and as teachers. And here's what we have to understand. And that is that a society, Pastor Larry, can only exist when the people making up that society share adherence to a common matrix of morality. In the same way that if a man and woman with two totally different moral matrices marry, it's going to be a disaster ending in divorce. In the same way that neighbors have to share a common morality or the neighborhood will become a horrible slum, there is a reason why the Canadian-American border is 5,000 miles long 
and has no armies stationed on it, and neither does it have multi-page contracts regulating it. And that's because, generally speaking, in broad terms, the people on the north side of that border and the people on the south side of that border subscribe to the same Judeo-Christian Bible-based morality matrix. And that's why. The border between India and Pakistan is not like that, because there are two different systems of morality on either side of that border. It does not work. And we've got to understand that there are brave barbarians and cowardly barbarians. Brave barbarians fly airplanes into buildings after they've cut the throats of stewardesses. Cowardly barbarians occupy their positions of prestige and tenure in American universities, and they pride and compliment and applaud the actions of the brave barbarians, but they're yeah. all barbarians. Yes. You can be a barbarian in a suit and tie. You can be barbarian standing in front of a class teaching. You can be a barbarian, an attendee at an elite American university. It is. It has to do with your belief system. And if your mora morality matrix is Judeo-Christian, then you stand against barbarism. But if you've lost that, and we've got to remember that in American public schools that I call GICs, government indoctrination centers, we've got to remember that morality was removed. They said, hey, we can't teach morality because whose morality should we teach? We certainly cannot teach a Judeo-Christian Bible-based morality, and they didn't. But the trouble is that we human beings are not camels or cows or kangaroos. We're human beings created by the finger of God. And that means we need and insist on self-defining moral matrices. And if you don't give us one, we'll make up one of our own. Amen. And we do that based on our emotions. And that is why people who went through the American school system and eventually moved on to the university campus and many of them then became faculty and professors. They created their own morality matrix, but in the absence of a Bible-based morality matrix from our boss, they created it based on their own emotions. And one of the laziest and most basic ways of creating a morality matrix is saying the victim is always virtuous. And that way you get to define who the victim is. And so that's why it is that in the day or two after October the 7th, we had the sympathy of the world because we were the victims. And a few days after Yom Kippur, October the 6th, 1973, we had, but as soon as the Jews stop being victims, they lose the morality status of them because right. barbarians right. depend on the status of victims. And so I don't know, I'm afraid, I don't know that rallies are on their own altogether enough, but we do need to stand shoulder to shoulder because what we have to de defend is not just Israel against Hamas, but civilization against barbarism. Amen. And if we want this grand experiment of the United States of America Amen. to be here for our children and our grandchildren, then we need to defeat barbarism here and now. Amen.
Amen. Thank you, Rabbi. We so appreciate it. We love you. Can't wait to have you back in Dallas. Give our love to Susan and the whole family. And uh, we so appreciate you so very, very, very much. Love Thank you. Thank you very much. You should. Uh, we, we derive a lot of uplift and energy and inspiration from being with your new beginnings. And, um, and so I'm happy to be with you long distance today, but we look forward to being back with you in person. God bless. See you, Rabbi. Before I introduce the next rabbi to come and speak, I want to give acknowledgement to a few people that have honored us with coming today as Jews and Christians stand together uh, for the nation of Israel, and not only for the nation of Israel, but to be loud and clear, to speak up whenever you hear any anti-Semitic comment, any anti-Semitic comment. And so first off, just dear friends of ours, powerful, powerful allies to Israel and the Jewish people around the world. I'd like to have Doug and Joni Lamb Why stand up and would you honor them, the heads of Daystar Network Television, the greatest Christian television station in the world. Of course, we're on there, we're a little prejudiced, but it is, they love Israel. They, for years and years and years and years, they have been standing with Israel, supporting Israel, very plowed, fly big Israeli flags on the campus. We love you guys and we honor your courage and your love for the nation of Israel. Where's Diane Benjamin? Diane, would you stand up and stand, standing as we introduce um, some of your guests, uh, Barry Wernick, who is attorney and mediator, arbiter, a former emissary for Zion Organization of America and past board member of B'nai Zion Foundation. And currently Republican candidate for Texas House of Representatives in District 108. You know, one of, one of, the, one of the things that um, Rabbi said is, is rallies are not enough. A big way we make a difference is voting. You've got to vote. You cannot complain about what's going on if you're not voting. And I'm going to say this at the end of my talk, you can't complain for what's going on if you're voting for an administration that is pro-Iran, that is standing with the country that is funding this. We are accountable for the way we vote. Dr. Fer, uh, Benita, Benita Ferrer, uh, psychiatrist at the Dallas VA Hospital and former B'nai Zion board member. Good to see you again. We, we've done a lot for, with years, over the years, with B'nai Zion Hospital in Haifa. Wonderful, wonderful group. Caroline Blumen, Blumen former B'nai Zion board member and past president of Northwood Republican Women. Of course, Diane Benjamin, you already met, former president of the Southwest Region of B'nai Zion Foundation. Republican precinct chairman, former chair, uh, chairman, uh, state of Israel bonds and uh, VP of Hadassah. We've known Diane. Diane, we love you. Give her another good hand, if you would. Um, we have Justice David Schneck, Schneck, Texas Supreme Court Justice. Remember these names come voting time. 
Sharon Bolin uh, of Sharon Bolin Ministries. Where is Sharon? Stand up so we can. Oh yeah, Sharon. She's she's a strong voice. We love her. Her and my girls went out to lunch for eight hours the other day. It was like one time we were doing a lunch with Ted Cruz, and uh, and the 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 I won't say who it was, but did a prayer that lasts 55 minutes. And Ted got up and said, this is the first prayer breakfast I've ever been at that turned into a prayer lunch. Uh, Virginia Shepherd brought, Virginia and Doc Shepherd, would you stand? Uh, Larry and Shirley Strauss, chairman of the Jewish Studies Advisory Board of UNT and past president of Congress Beth Tora. Welcome, uh, Steve and Roberta Toback. Dallas County representatives of the Texas Silver-Haired Legislation. Silver-Haired Legislation. I love it. Arville Harris, former director of B'nai Zion. Oh, good to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. Wonderful. Dr. Scott Peck, director of Biblical Arts Museum in Dallas. Where's Doc? Good to have you, Doc. God bless you. And Tova Feldman, who is a Holocaust survivor. Where is Tova? You know, Tova, last year I had the, an unbelievable honor being asked by uh, um, Rabbi Lau, chief rabbi of Israel, former chief rabbi of Israel, to walk with him in honoring the Holocaust survivors from Auschwitz to Birkenau. And he and I sat together in the front row, and he said, walk with me, we'll make history a rabbi and a pastor walking together to say never again. And unfortunately, we have to say never again, again. But we're putting our foot down, sweetheart, and we are saying never again, not on our watch. So thank you for honoring us to be here. Would you put your hands together as we welcome Rabbi Meyer Sabo, Rabbi, would you come up? Rabbi, uh, of, he's the rabbi of the congregation of Terah Israel, born and raised in Israel, served in the IDF as a tank sergeant, devoted to Jewish education for Jewish children. His brothers are in the IDF right now, fighting on the northern border. We have Hamas on the southern border. We have Hezbollah on the northern borders. And we've covered them with divine protection of Hashem. His cousins are, other cousins are in the elite units fighting in Gaza. He and his lovely wife, Sarah, have five children. And may all you and your family be covered by the safety of Almighty God. Amen. Thank, Thank you for coming, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. It's a great honor to be here. It's a great honor to be, I, I didn't know, we have so many people that love us here. That's amazing to see. That's, that's news for me. I, that's amazing to see that. No, in these uh, special times, special times allow you to have a set 
of options that you really don't get on regular times. Looking back in our Torah, when we, we read a different part of the Torah every week. We started from Genesis, the first book in the Hebrew Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. And now we read about Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and the unbroken covenant that they made with Hashem, with the Lord. And that unbroken covenant goes down to Isaac and Rebekah, Yitzchak. That's my first name, Yitzchak. And that covenant continues with Jacob, with Yaakov, Rachel, Rachel, and Leah. Leah, I guess it's the same in Hebrew and English, at least one name. <laughs> and so what is special is that back then, you see, the way things started between Abraham and God is that in time that humanity already moved away from God, idol worship was happening all across the world. In time that no one was buying that stock that says one God on it, Abraham was buying that stock. Okay, the Jews got it from somewhere, fellas. Abraham got it from that, Abraham bought that stock, bought in to saying there is one God and that one God has expectations for me to be and bring goodness out there to the world. So that's what he started to do. And he bought in really in times that he was the only one. Abraham Ha'ivri, we call him Abraham the Hebrew, to say that he was on one side and humanity was on exactly the opposite side. He didn't care. He did what was right. And he made the right choices in time that it was a possibility to make a choice and make it count forever. And we are standing in times like this today. Our choices matter. Our choices matter. Even to what, to what we like on social media. Our choices matter. If you make a choice, when you hear an anti-Semitic comment, to be silent or to stand up, that matters. And God is going to reward those who stand right, those who stand with Israel, those who make the right choices today. Those who make the right choices today, them and their families will be rewarded for that forever. Because this is the time that the table is open. And there is a challenge. And the choices are not clear. Your friends, your peers, your colleagues in university, on the street, you might make the easier way out as to, hey, I don't know, I don't know politics. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And we're going to stand together to make that sound loud and clear. Israel, the oldest nation in the world, is here to stay forever. Day of reckoning is coming. Those who stand with Israel will remain standing forever. Thank you, Pastor. God bless.
All right. No one ever spoke, asked a rabbi to speak more. So, even if it was just for that, it was worth it. I'll tell it in my synagogue, no one will believe me. You were done? The pastor told you to continue? All right. Right on. I want to tell you, in special times, you know, I was born and raised in Israel. And Israeli society sometimes can be complex. And in the past few weeks, the unity, the unity right there in the streets of Israel, the amount of volunteer, the amount of chesed, which is kindness and charity that people do. People go out of their way. People go out of the way to do things that they never imagined. Well, restaurants preparing food, sending it to the front lines. Uh, people buying vests and this and that and every, everybody out together. You see a unity in the streets of Israel that the last time, the last time that we were that united was 1967 and we got Jerusalem back. The last time, or the first time we were so united was by Mount Sinai. And we got the Torah to bring this light onto the world. That's what happens when Israel is united. And so something great is about to come. Something great is about to come. And you know what? When that day comes... When that day comes and we're all going to stand in a line and Hashem will say, you know what? Those who stood with Israel, raise your hand. Because you will be blessed for it. Together with us. Those who stood with us and fought with us. A few days ago, I was a tank man. So I always, you know, obviously every Israeli soldier that's fallen in battle, it's a whole world. Brave, brave people, mighty heroes. There was a uh, 38 years old Hassan Salame from a Druze village that's called Yanuach. It's up in the Galilee. I lived in the Galilee. I you know, always in times like that would go and, and pay condolences. And I have family members who drove to his village to pay respect to the family. This guy, the Druze, he's not an Arab, he's not a Muslim, they're Druze. And he, when he figured out on November 7th, on uh, October 7th, What's going on in the south? He took initiative. He's a tank battalioner. He was home. He drove south. He organized two tanks. Told them, hey, fellas, I'm a tank battalioner. Nice to meet you. You're under my command. Let's go. He reached Kibbutz Beri, the Beri Kibbutz, later than what he hoped to. But he was there. It was eventually what stopped the massacre in Kibbutz Beri was his two tanks, Right there on premises. He continued. 
He didn't stop. He fought. He fought non-stop since day one. He fell in battle Thursday, this past Thursday or Wednesday. Seen his last video. His last video that I heard on, on, uh, on the radio. He calls a battalion, near of battalion 13 of the Golani Brigade. He told them that where they are in a tough situation and said, I need help. And as Golani Battalion number 13 was closing down to help him out. And the battalionier of Golani 13 Battalion, the Golani Brigade, the 13th Battalion, told him, you came to my aid on Friday when my people were stuck in the kibbutz. I'm coming now. I'm coming to save you and your troops. It was too late for him personally, but they won the battle. And we are intending to win every single battle, no matter what the price is. May God bless Israel. May God bless you guys standing together with us. And may God bless the United States of America and bring the merit to this country to be, to stand on the right side of history, shoulder to shoulder with us forever. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Pastor. Awesome. Thank you. Standing with you, brother. Standing with you. Amen. Give Rabbi a good hand, would you please? Stay standing just for a moment. I'm going to introduce uh, Rabbi Peshik here in a moment. Rabbi Peshik is an Orthodox rabbi and a leading voice on the focus for Jewish and Christian relationship. He's a regular uh, columnist with Israeli 365. Israeli 365 is a great, great organization. Um, we did a thing a few weeks ago together. The, the way it happened is we put this together in a week. And we were in a staff meeting last week, and I said, we need to do something. I, I'm, I'm angry about all these Palestinian marches. I'm angry about these Hamas flags being flown. I'm angry hearing people march in the street and say, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. Excuse me, I didn't see my good, good friend, Rafael Cruz here. Rafael, wave at us. Ted for president, Ted for president. Does it anger you? It, it angers me to see these idiots marching on the streets that have no idea what they're talking about, but they're being, they're being instigated, as, as uh, uh, Rabbi Lappin said, by college professors. And so we were in there, and I said, we got to do something. I don't, see, I don't see Jews and Christians doing rallies and marching on the streets and waving, waving our flags. We, we got to do something. You know, we have a saying that said, he who talketh by the mile and worketh by the inch need to be kicketh by the foot. <laughs> and we need to do something about this. We need, there are more of us than there are of them. We just got to get out there and get rallied and get loud. And so we're looking at doing something for Crystal Knock that's coming up. We're looking at doing something perhaps during Hanukkah. And while, while we're doing this, I get a, a phone call from Rabbi Tuli, and Rabbi Peshik was going to speak uh, at another church, and maybe you'll address this and motivate people, but they canceled him. 
And uh, he, uh, Rabbi Tuli called me and said, are you thinking about doing something? I said, well, we're working on a calendar because, you know, it takes more than a week to organize things correctly and get everything taken care of. He said, can you do something faster? And I said, we could do something Sunday if you want. And he said, Rabbi was going to speak at another church and they canceled him because uh, it's too controversial right now standing up with Israel. Let me say something. Any pastor that doesn't have the... I could say it in Hebrew, but some of you would know what I'm saying. Shame on you. And any rabbi that doesn't have the... to stand up, shame on you. Because as shepherds and leaders and teachers, we are to be leading the way not wondering which way the flock wants to go. And so we have a saying, all things work together for good. So when Rabbi Tuli called me and he said, Rabbi Peshik would be here, and I've heard his teachings, it's absolutely wonderful. But you know what I love about Rabbi Tuli and Rabbi Ali and Rabbi uh, um, Peshik is th they're bold. And this is a time to be bold. So would you welcome our good friend, Rabbi Peshik, to come. And as he comes, let me say, he has three children right now fighting in the battle over there for not only Israel's safety, but they're fighting for our safety because they're fighting evil against civilization. You have a son-in-law also, I believe, that's battling Rabbi. And so we're going to keep your family in prayer as we do all of Israel. We love you. Thank you for being with us. Give him a great big hand right now. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Larry. Wow, it just got real quiet. So as, you, uh, as Pastor Larry mentioned, yeah, I have, I have three of my own children two of my sons who are in combat infantry, and a daughter who's a combat medic who's at a MASH unit behind the uh, front lines. And I have a son-in-law who's an officer in a combat unit, and they're all, they're all busy. A week ago, last, well, a little less than a week ago, on Monday, I was on my way from Waco to Dallas, I had just spoken at, uh, at Truett Seminary at Baylor University, you know, s spreading the word, speaking to students, speaking to leaders about the war. I've been on the road now for a few weeks. And I got to tell you, it was not easy leaving home in the middle of a war. There were about 10 seconds where I considered canceling my trip until I was talking to my wife about it, and, and I was like, wait a second. There's a lot of people my age who, you know, they're not calling us back for reserve duty anymore, who are wondering what their role in the war is. But as someone who's been involved in Jewish-Christian relations and have a lot of relationships with Christian leaders and Christian communities, especially Christian campuses, I realize that I know exactly what my role is. I got to get out there and I got I to gotta speak to people, I gotta wake people up and get us all moving. So I was, I was driving from Waco to Dallas flying up I-35, going much faster than is legal. You know, as Jews, we're always in a rush. 
And my son, my 19-year-old son, who's in the infantry, called me. And since the war started, I haven't seen him. The day the war started, he was home for a 24-hour leave for the festival. And he got the call. And for the first time in my life, I drove my car on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, because I had to take him to the pickup point. And life and death situations override the Sabbath laws. I haven't seen him since. His phone gets turned on once every few days. Sometimes a whole week goes by. So he called me while I was driving down the highway. We were on Bluetooth. Don't worry, I didn't do anything dangerous. <laughs> I answered the call. And he said, Dad, Abba, he said, I'm just calling to tell you I love you. Our unit's going into, into Gaza tonight. And they gave us a few minutes to call. So I told him I love him. I told him how proud I am. I told him to remember his training, to not be afraid. And I gave him a blessing. And we hung up. I held it in long enough till we hung up. I didn't want him to hear the, my voice cracking. I didn't want him to hear me crying, because that might give him faintness of heart. And God forbid any of our warriors are, have any faintness. So I hung up with him, and uh, I started bawling my eyes out, which only made this drive more dangerous. It was a tough day. I'll tell you all, though, this morning I heard from him, and he's back on base for a little while. Thank you. When I, as I was bawling my eyes out in the car and thinking about that phone call that I just had, my mind went to a teaching in Genesis, can we do a little Bible teaching? Is that okay? Yeah. This ain't just a rally, right? We could, we could actually study some scripture here this morning. So I remembered a teaching I heard many years ago. And it just so happened that it also hit me that this teaching was on this week's Torah portion. As many of you know, we have a weekly Torah portion where we go through the five books of Moses every year. And this week's Torah portion the one that we just read yesterday in the synagogue. So this past Monday, it was the week's Torah portion. In the week leading up to each, each Sabbath, the whole Jewish world, and this has been going on since the time of Ezra, beginning of the Second Temple period, nonstop, the same cycle. The whole Jewish world studies the same portion of the Torah every week. And in this week's Torah portion, we have the story of the binding of Isaac, the famous story of Abraham heeding the call of God and being willing to offer up his son. And the Binding of Isaac story begins with a pretty innocuous verse, the kind of verse we don't even notice when we're reading the Bible. We kind of surf when we read the Bible. But you know, us rabbis, we read the Bible very carefully. We, we, we nitpick. And then we have all these legal teachings, right? So I want to share with you a, a teaching, an ancient Jewish teaching, on the opening line, the opening verse of the Binding of Isaac story. Genesis 22, verse 1 reads, Now it came to pass. Can I have the first slide? Voila. <laughs> now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Well, kind of boring verse, isn't it? Now there are many stories in the Bible, and most of them don't begin with the words, now it came to pass after these things. 
Usually in the Bible, after one story ends, you just get the next story. But every now and then, there's a story in the Bible that's introduced by saying, after this happened, that happened. Every word in the Bible matters. So there's a Jewish scholar, a rabbi, one of the great commentators on the Torah, who lived in the 12th century. His name was Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, known by his acronym Rashbam. And, and Rashbam, this rabbi, is very into the plain meaning of the text. What are the words saying? But he's also very into nitpicking, picking up on each little word and why was it necessary. Because if there's a word that wasn't necessary, it wouldn't be in the Bible. And usually his comments are very short, little one-line comments commenting on this word or that word. And here he goes on for paragraphs. And he starts out by explaining, and it seems very logical once you hear it, that any story in the Bible that begins with the words, after this happened, this happened, it means that there's some relationship between the previous story and what's about to happen next. Make sense? Otherwise, why say that? And then he brings a few examples in his commentary. And then he says, okay, so what does it mean here? Why does the story of the binding of Isaac begin with the words, after that happened, God tested Abraham? So what happened right before the binding of Isaac? Well, the story right before the binding of Isaac is the story of Abraham signing a peace treaty with the king of the Philistines, Avimelech. And in the negotiations, Abraham raises the issue of some wells of water that were stolen from him by the Philistines. The king of the Philistines pushes back and says, oh, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Abraham doesn't bring it up again. And then Abraham gives a gift to the king of the Philistines. There's no gift coming the other way. And he signs a treaty that they won't antagonize each other. They won't infringe on each other's property. Now, the land of the Philistines, if any of you know a map, is otherwise known as the Gaza Strip and some other areas around it. The Philistine territory was a little bigger, but all of the Gaza Strip was in Philistine territory. And Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, writing in the 12th century, says that the word used for God testing Abraham, that word test, nisa, is always used in the Bible as a test that is designed to rebuke like, I'm testing you because you did something wrong. And he proves it. He gives the examples. And he says, what happened here is that God was rebuking Abraham. I know that's a little harsh. We love Abraham. I revere him too. But Abraham had to learn a lesson. And God said to Abraham, here's the words of Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir. Let's have the next slide. Here... Are we allowed to do a rabbinic teaching in church on a Sunday morning? Is that okay? okay? Here God told Abraham that he was foolish to think that he could guarantee Isaac's and his descendants' well-being into the future as he might have to terminate Isaac's life before he even produced any children who would be called upon to honor Abraham's deal with Avimelech. In other words... God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, I didn't tell you to make a peace treaty. I didn't tell you to surrender your sovereignty over part of the land of Israel that I gave you. What good is your peace treaty if you take your only son and kill him and you don't even have any descendants? 
Whoa. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Don't worry. Save it, okay? He's using up all the excitement now. And for many years, when I first read this teaching of Rashbam, maybe 25, 30 years ago, I shared it with a few friends of mine. And then later when I met my wife a few years, I met my wife, what, 27 years ago, 28 years ago? I should know, right? I shared it with my wife. And she pointed out to me that that explains how the story ends. At the end of the story, we all know the story of the binding of Isaac, right? They're willing to sacrifice. Isaac's willing. Abraham's willing. The angel of God comes down and stops Abraham. And then at the very end of the story, the angel of God, speaking in God's voice, gives a blessing to Abraham. Let's put up the next slide. And here's what God says to Abraham. By myself, you see, like we swear by God, right? God just says, by me, right? By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is my wife's explanation. I don't know if she was as dramatic as I'm going to be. There are three elements to this blessing. Look at it again. Go back one slide. Let's look at the whole blessing again. There are three elements to the blessing. The, the angel, God promises Abraham as reward for the, being willing to sacrifice his only son, promises him three things. I will surely multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand and the sea. Your descendants will inherit or possess the gate of their enemies. And the whole world will be blessed through your children. Two of those, three, we've heard before. We've already been, Abraham's already been told multiple times at this point in Genesis 22 that he will have children as many as the stars in heaven and the sea and the, and the sand and the seashore. That showed up already in Genesis 12 and Genesis 14. We've seen that before. We've also seen the blessing that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. We've seen that before. The only new blessing that is bestowed upon Abraham after the binding of Isaac is that his children will defeat their enemies. And the message could not be more clear. This is the only new blessing as a result of the binding of Isaac. And that tells me that that's the point of the story. That Abraham was being taught that you don't surrender pieces of the land of Israel and show weakness to secure the future of your children. And that the only way you can be victorious in the wars over your enemies is if you are willing to put up your children. If you're willing to put up your son. That's what I thought about when I hung up the phone with my son the other day. You cannot win wars if you're not willing to sacrifice your son. Does God want the sacrifice? No, of course not. That's part of the story. He doesn't want our sons to die, but we have to be willing to put them up. You see, you know all these suicide bombings we've been witnessing for the last decades? 
You know what that's really about? As demonic as it is, let's, let's pay a little respect to our enemies. They are willing to die so that we will die. They're willing to die to defeat us. Are we as dedicated as they are? Are we as dedicated as they are? People are always telling me when I get introduced that my kids are in combat units, telling me they'll pray for my family, pray for my, my, my children. And I appreciate that you guys all applauded when I said my son is okay. But there's other boys who are in there fighting right now. More than you pray for my family, I want you to pray for victory. Yeah. Pastor Larry, can I have three more minutes? Can I go over? I know it's, it's, I usually don't like to do that, but I'm running a little hot. So, <laughs> But this is the lesson Abraham has to learn. It's a lesson we have to learn. Now that you're willing to sacrifice your son, now you can defeat your enemies. Let's take that in. Now, we're standing here today, Jews and Christians together, and we have to realize that, the, you know, I was saying to Pastor Larry back in his office before the service today that Christians really need to realize that this isn't about helping the Jews. That's not what this is about. This is about our fight. Because the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle over history, the most repeated prophecy in the Bible, by far, there are whole chapters and books devoted to it, is the prophecy of the improbable, impossible, miraculous return of the nation of Israel, restoration of the nation of Israel to our land after many generations of exile scattered throughout the world. And it was a bold, crazy prophecy when it was made because no nation had ever gone into exile and survived. It would be miraculous even if it hadn't been predicted. And it's the greatest proof of God's dominion over history. And it's the greatest proof of the truth of the Bible. And let me put it straight. If Israel loses this war, the Bible's false. Oh, so that means we're, we're, we're for sure going to win, right? But we, but we have to fight for it. God wants us to fight for it. He wants us to be there. And I want to share with you one last verse. I'm so grateful for you to give me a couple extra minutes. Well, we didn't say how many, so. <laughs> but I'd like to share with you a verse from, from, the, from the prophet Zephaniah. Before you put the slide up, don't put it up yet. There's a verse in Zephaniah. You know, a number of years ago, I work in Jewish-Christian relations, and I was, speaking to a, I was preparing to speak to a Christian group. This is about seven, eight years ago. And I wanted to speak about this verse in Zephaniah. Now, I read the Bible in Hebrew. And I just look up English translations when I'm preparing to speak to people who don't know Hebrew. So I look up Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, because I wanted to talk about this verse, about all the nations coming together and praising God as one. So let's have the next slide. And, and here I put up which translation it is. And I looked up, on, you know, on Bible Gateway, you get like 52 translations. And I read this, uh, this verse, and it said, For then I will restore to the peoples then in the future, I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Everyone serving God in agreement. Isn't that beautiful? Wait, here's the problem. I was like, the end of that verse is not translated properly. That's not what it says. 
So I looked at more translations in the list, and I found this. Next slide, please. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. And I was like, huh. Well, that's not what it says either. You see, here's a, here's a clue. If there is a word in a verse that's translated the same in all the translations, they probably got it right. But when you have a phrase or a, or a, or, or a, a word that has different, it's translated differently in all the different translations, they're probably all wrong because it means that the Hebrew can't really be captured by any straight-up English translation or sometimes translators don't want to translate it directly because they don't want their translations to sound strange and sometimes God says strange things. So in, in some translations it says, that all the nations of the world will come together at the end times. We'll all call out the name of the Lord together and serve him with one accord. And the other translations say that we're all going to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Okay, what does the Hebrew say? The Hebrew says that all the nations of the world will come together, purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him as one shoulder. Shechem echad in Hebrew. Shechem means shoulder, echad means one. It doesn't even say like one shoulder. It says to serve him as one shoulder. Now, translators don't like things that don't sound normal. So they fix, they take out the red pen and they fix God's word. And you lose. You see, one translator says, well, serving God as one shoulder really means everyone's in agreement, so I'll write one accord. Excuse me, sir, that's not a translation. That's a commentary. If Zephaniah wanted to say one accord, he could have said that. He didn't. The other translator says, well, one shoulder, two people don't have one shoulder, so I'll just write shoulder to shoulder. Excuse me. If Zephaniah wanted to say shoulder to shoulder, he could have said that too. Now open your heart and listen. What is the difference between shoulder to shoulder and one shoulder? You see, if we're shoulder to shoulder, and in all languages and all cultures, a shoulder means a it implies a burden that you're carrying. And certainly in biblical motif, that's what a shoulder implies. So if we're serving the Lord shoulder to shoulder, it means that we're bearing a burden together, right? We're shoulder to shoulder. We're side by side. We're carrying the same burden. But we're shoulder to shoulder. You're in your body. I'm in my body. If I feel pain, you don't necessarily feel it. When we're done, we go our separate ways. But what if we're one shoulder? What if we're serving God as one shoulder? What does that mean? That means that if you feel pain, I feel it too. And that means that we're not going our separate ways when we're done. Folks, this battle is our battle. It's not my battle. It's our battle. It's a battle for God. It's a battle for the truth of the Bible. Every Christian who's ever said, I stand with Israel, well, guess what? This is where the rubber meets the road, folks. And this is our battle, and we will fight it as one shoulder. And one day, you will all join me. We will all together stand at the gates of the temple in Jerusalem in what Isaiah called the house of prayer for all nations, and we will serve the Lord God together. Folks, we've never been closer to the kingdom of God. Let's bring it in today. God bless you.
Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Diane. Introduce me. <laughs> I need this as an anchor, otherwise I'm going to be all over the place here. Wow. Wow. Rabbis. My esteemed rabbis and pastors, mishpacha, family, haverim, friends. What a joy to be home again at New Beginnings Church, where I have been on this pulpit before and greeted so beautifully by this incredible congregation. The warmth here. You know, we were talking about Abraham. Abraham did not wait at his tent, which was open on all four corners for all to enter. He went out and greeted people. When I came to the, sh to the shul, I was going to say the shul, to the congregation today, I was greeted outside and brought inside, just as I was entering Abraham's tent. And I want to bring that analogy. It's just an incredible time to be here because we all know that Israel is our barometer. It's the barometer for all freedom-loving people because her fate is ours. People ask me, do you have family in Israel? And I say, yes, millions, because Israel is our family, all of ours. It is our family, and as only family knows and feels, this is what we share with our congregation here at New Beginnings. I want to take a moment and also thank my rabbi, Sabo. I was in Shul yesterday, and of course, he is an outstanding rabbi. And rabbi, you said nobody would believe me. I believe you. I guarantee you everyone in Ashul believes you because you speak manam from heaven. Now, we read, everybody made reference to Abraham because we're all reading the same passages. They're all uh, um, uh, part of Genesis. And, and when I think of uh, the opening of Genesis, what is it? in the beginning, and here we are at the New Beginnings Church. How appropriate. There are not just new beginnings, because this is as old as can be, as long as I've known this church. You've always fostered wonderful relationships between the Christian and the Jewish community. And I want to liken Pastor Huck to Abraham. Abraham taught us Two things, of course, many things, but he was the epitome of everything kind, good, loving kindness we learned from Abraham. And, of course, the first thing that we learn is that you do good deeds of loving kindness for the very fact that it's the right thing to do. And the other purpose is to lead by example. We have here 
at the New Beginnings Church, a true leader who leads by example. And it is through his leadership that we know, with all due respect, Rabbi Lappin, we are not victims. We are victors. And Pastor Huck has taught us through his teachings and through leading by example. And you're not a little country boy. You are Monmouth in our eyes. You are incredible. How do we know just the many wonderful deeds of loving kindness that he has taught us all through the years? This congregation has been teaching Tzedakah and uh, a charity in Chesed, which is loving kindness. Um, they have established the uh, hospital underground emergency room at the B'nai Zion Found Foundation Hospital in, in Haifa. And among his many wonderful uh, deeds of loving kindness, Pastor Larry has taught our congregation here the needs to sponsor the 10 mobile ICU ambulances and counting still more through the Mug and Dove at Adam, Israel's uh, uh, national ambulance company. And for the past 10 years or so, he has been on the board and key contributor to the Israel Allies Foundation with Josh Reinstein. Uh, this is the Knesset-based uh, group that makes pro-Israel legislation in America and over 50 nations around the world. Additionally, he is in partnership with Karen Hayesed, Israel's national fundraising arm, for seven years and includes huge support for Aliyah, supporting Holocaust survivors and the elderly, funding the children's victims of terror funds, buying mobile um, bomb shelters, and just recently purchasing a military-grade military ambulance. It just The list goes on and on. I have been asked to introduce... Pastor Larry Huck. He has been to Israel. Unbelievable. When I say mana from heaven, he does things before he's even asked to do things. And that, to me, is true love. He anticipates the needs of others. And that is, as I said, true love. Pastor Larry Huck is the last speaker now on today's program, I'm told. And so I'd like to liken this to um, a Hebrew saying that is Haron, Haron Haviv, which is the last is the most beloved. And why do we say this? As we recall that Yaakov, in arranging the family to meet with Esau at a potentially explosive gathering, he placed his loved ones at the end of the line to, to protect them. Larry protects Israel, protects us all. And so we want to protect you. And please welcome this incredible human being and uh, Pastor Larry Huck. the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
Man, that's the best introduction I've ever had. I'm not going to take long. I'm going to be brief, but I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that says when we're in a fight, let's get in a fight and let's win it. And we're in a fight right now. You know, one of the things that bothers me the most, the further we get away from October 7th, is that we begin to forget. The media starts changing, the news starts changing, and we begin to forget what happened in Israel on October 7th. And I'm not going to get real graphic, but you need to understand what these butchers did, what these, these demonic people did. They cut babies out of uh, pregnant women and cut the babies' heads off. They tied families together and burned them alive. Uh, the Lord willing, I may show you a little video that I just got from uh, Israeli government this morning. They sent to me, asked me if I would come over. I'm looking at going over in the next couple of days because they want us to keep this voice going and to speak out loud. But it, it, it bothers me that we're seeing demonstrations that are standing for pro-Hamas. How can anybody in America... You know, I'm going to say this. This is not politically correct. If you're pro-Hamas, if you're pro what these people did, the babies and women and children, you ought not be in America because America is a nation founded under, uh, under God. So I want to look at a few things real quick. How do we answer these, these people? You know, the Bible says in, uh, what, what is it, Proverbs 17, and I think it's a word of God for all these demonstrators that are out there marching around the world and shouting pro-Hamas and shouting uh, Israel are the occupiers. Uh, Proverbs 17 says, even a fool appears wise when you keep your mouth shut. And they need to understand that they have no idea what they're talking about. You know, uh, I'm about to show you some maps here real quick and show you who does that land really belong to. If the Palestinians, if, if Israel are the occupiers, then Israel needs to leave. But if the Palestinians are the occupiers, then maybe they need to leave. And so we need to look at what it really says. But as we're getting the maps ready, I read a story um, of years ago about an Israeli ambassador to the UN. And the Israeli ambassador was about to speak. And he said, before I speak, he said, I want to tell a story. And he says, Moses was in the River Jordan bathing. And when he came out from bathing, a Palestinian had stole his clothes. And the Palestinian ambassador shouted, we weren't even there then. And he said, now that we've established who owned the land. <laughs> so is our Israeli, we're hearing uh, from, the, from the river to the sea, are the Jews the occupiers? I want to show you first, we could go back 4,000 years and show the history of Israel, but I want to show a map here of what's called the Ottoman Empire. And when you look at the Ottoman Empire, I want you to understand that the Ottoman Empire that, that, that uh, originated from 1517 to 1917. For 700 years, the Ottoman Empire not only covered all of this land, but into Africa and into, uh, into Europe. The Ottoman Empire were Turks. Now, the Ottoman Empire controlled all that land. Everybody in that land was the Ottoman Empire. Number one, this, they're, they're saying that this is Arab-Palestinian land. From 1517 to 1917, 
The Ottoman Empire ran that, and the Ottomans are not Arabs. So for 400 years, we, we're not going back 4,000, 400 years up until the end of World War I, 1917, this land was run by the Ottoman Empire. So that immediately eliminates that this belonged to Palestinian Arabs because the Ottoman Empire were not Arabs. Somebody say amen. All right, so then after 1917, which is the end of World War I, and I'm giving you this very quickly, we had three main things that happened. We had the Balfour Declaration, we had the San Remo Conference, and we had the League of Nations from 1917 to around 1921. And they decided after the war, you know, a great way to look at this is watch the movie Lawrence of Arabia. These were all Bedouin tribes. These were all Arab tribes. There were no organized land, organized countries, organized states. But after World War I, they got in and they decided to, bring my next map up, they decided to divide the country into what we see mostly as the Middle East. But if you look at this, now this is after, this is after the Allied forces had defeated Germany and defeated the uh, Ottoman Empire. And so they came in and they said, okay, this is going to be Syria. This is going to be Iraq. This is going to be Saudi Arabia. This is what's called Palestine. And if you look at the size of Palestine, which is what we call Israel today, if you look at that, it includes most of what we call the country of Jordan right now. So this is what was going to happen. The Allied forces decided this is what is going to happen. But then, guess what? Oil got involved. And when oil gets involved, money gets involved. And so they begin to shrink it down. And let's show the map what became uh, Israel. So here's what was originally agreed would be Israel, or what we call Pal what was called Palestine. And I'll tell you why it was called Palestine. They shrunk it down. And so instead of this being the land of Israel, they shrunk it down to this because of oil and because of money. Nobody else's land was shrunk. Lebanon's land's not shrunk. Syria's land's not shrunk. Nobody's land is shrunk except the Israelites because there has always been a war against having the Jews in this area. Now, you look at this map and you see that it's called Palestine. Where did the name Palestine came from? You go all the way back to the time when Rome ruled Israel, and Rome could break Israel physically. They could defeat Israel physically, but Hadrian could not break the spirit of Israel. And so he was so infuriated, and you go all the way back to Masada and the Barcoba re uh, Revolution, and he couldn't break them. He couldn't get them to bow down to the Roman gods. And so he made a declaration. Now, this is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is ruling the world. And he made a declaration, and he said these words. He said, no longer do I want to hear the name of Israel or Judea or Samaria, from now on, it's going to be called Palestine. The reason he picked Palestine, because there were members, or there was a, a small country, as the rabbi said, which, is, which was right over in the corner of what Israel and Egypt was, and this is where the Philistines came from. The Philistines were not Muslim. The Philistines were not Arab. The Philistines were 
Aegean, and they were uh, kind of from the Greek background. So there's no connection whatsoever with the name Philistine and Palestine of being an Arab Palestinian people. Zero, nothing, nada, nowhere, never. How many times is Palestine named in the Quran? Zero. How many times is Palestine named in the Bible? Zero. But let me take you another step. How many times is Jerusalem, the holiest, third holiest spot, how many times is Jerusalem named in the Quran? Zero. How many times in the Bible? Over 800 times. So how did this end up being that the Jewish people are occupying Palestinian Arab land? Well, once this all took place and Israel became a nation in 1948, once, and the reason I'm telling you this is so when people say they're occupying, you can look at them very biblically and say to them from the bottom of your heart, liar, liar, pants on fire. This is a bold-faced lie. So in 1948, here's, here was the land given to the Jewish people. In 1948, Israel's attacked by all the Arab nations. And they win, but the Jordanian people came in and they occupied a part of Israel, which is now called by the world the West Bank. But it's not the West Bank. It is, according to the word of God, Judea and Samaria. So in reality, in the West Bank, what you have is not Jews occupying Palestinian land. What you have are Jordanians occupying the land called Israel. Now, Israel, Israel gave up some and, and allowed things to happen. We're going through it very quickly. But in 1967, Israel won the war again. In 1973, Israel won the war again in the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. Israel won. But what happened is, is that Arafat in 1964, now listen to this. Arafat, the terrorist in 1964, hired a public relations firm out of New York. I, it, it eludes me the name. It's three names. One of them is Anderson, and they're not in business anymore, obviously, because God said, I will bless those who bless Israel, and I'll curse those who curse Israel. But they hired it. I, and, you know, um, a couple years ago when President Trump was in office, I was asked to come to the White House and talk about a new uh, peace solution for the Middle East. And my suggestion with Jason Greenblatt was, we don't need a new peace solution in the Middle East. And he said, well, should we do anything? I said, yeah, acknowledge Israel's right to the Golan Heights. Israel has sovereign rights over the Golan Heights. And then all of a sudden, the lady comes in. He goes, that's the president. He looks at me and he says, Pastor Larry, he said, no land for peace? I said, it hasn't worked. Gaza was land for peace. Gaza was land for peace. It could have been a paradise. But instead of turning it into a paradise, when they removed their own citizens out of there and gave them everything, instead of it turning into a land of paradise, they turned it into a platform for terrorism. Land for peace has never worked. 
Can I have an amen? Land for peace has never worked. Now, the reason I bring that up is because just this morning, Biden and his administration said again, we still think land for peace is what's going to work. I want to play for you a video that came out a couple days ago. It's about a minute or so long. And it's one of the leaders of Hamas. And he's talking on a Lebanese television station. Let's play that video and see if they really do want land for peace. Play, play that video. Saying, quote, Israel must be finished. And that he's not ashamed to say that this is their goal. That is Dazi Hamas making the comments on Lebanese television. He also says that the Al-Aqsa flood, which is their name for the October 7th massacre, will happen again and again until the job is finished. Watch. Israel is a country that has no place on our land. We must remove that country because it constitutes a security, military, and political catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nation and must be finished. We are not ashamed to say this with full force. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. The Alaska flood is just the first time, and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. The occupation must come to an end. Occupation where? In the Gaza Strip? No, I am talking about all the Palestinian lands. Does that mean the annihilation of Israel? Yes, of course. The existence of Israel is what causes all that pain, blood, and tears. It is Israel, not us. We are the victims of the occupation, period. Therefore, nobody should blame us for the things we do. On October 7th, October 10th, October 1 million, everything we do is justified. On October 7th, on October 10th, or on October 1 million, everything we do, murdering babies, cutting babies' heads off, murdering and raping women, being barbaric beyond anything we have ever heard of before, everything we do is justified because that land belongs to us. When Arafat hired that firm in New York, he said, we've got the whole Arab nation. When I talked to Jason Greenblatt at, at Trump's office and he said, no land for peace, I said, picture the Dallas Cowboy football stadium. That's the Middle East. That's all the Arab nations. And take the Dallas Cowboy football stadium that holds 80,000 people and take a matchbook and put it in the corner down there. And the whole rest of the stadium says, give us half that matchbook and we'll have peace. This guy has proven, no matter, ever, since 1921, the land of Israel kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and there's never been peace. Why? Because this demonic leader of Hamas, and it's the same thing with Hezbollah and the other one, says, we don't want land for peace. What we want to do is annihilate every Jew on the face of the earth and remove them forever, and we will keep attacking, keep attacking, and keep attacking. And so when we hear the Biden administration or anybody say they need to have a ceasefire, of course, Biden's not saying a ceasefire. He's saying we need a pause. We need a pause. 
He's not asking a pause for hostages. He's not asking a pause for what's happening to those little babies and those women that have been in there for 30 days now. He just says we want to pause. But my God says that I will annihilate the spirit of Amalek off the face of the earth. And my friend, if there's ever been a time for Amalek to be wiped off, it is now. Somebody shout now. It is time to eliminate them. Until that, until that PR firm, there has never been, never been a Palestinian flag. There has never been a Palestinian state. There has never been a Palestinian government. That was created by a law firm in New York to say, you got this whole Dallas Cowboy Stadium, and they're the Goliath, and you got little Israel that is the David. He said, the, the guy at the, at the PR firm said, you need to become the victim. And so instead of all of the Arab nations fighting little Israel and getting their bottoms whooped every time they come in, because God is God. When you shout out Allah Akbar, you better believe God is great. But he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I read in the book, that God is going to win. So the PR firm says you can't let the Arab nations be the Goliath. You got to make Israel the Goliath. How do we do that? It's not you. It's not Israel fighting the Arab nations. It's Israel fighting the little Palestinian people. And so it wasn't until 1964 that there was ever a Palestinian flag. Even up till then, the UN did not call it the West Bank. The UN called it. Judea and Samaria, but it's when they got involved and they realized we've got to turn the view of the world around and let them think that Israel is picking on these people. Listen to me, my friend. 1948 was a war. Israel did not start it. 1967 was a war. Israel did not start it. 1973 was a war. Israel did not start it. And so when they're shouting, we need a, feast, uh, a ceasefire, there was a ceasefire. And it ended on October 7th, and once again, Israel did not start it again. <laughs> Ceasefire. Well, we're concerned. I'm gonna end with I'm gonna cut that way down. We're concerned about the civilians, the innocent civilians. And I agree, it, it's tragic when civilians are killed. But let me bounce this off you. When we realized that we had to destroy Hitler, did anybody call for a ceasefire or did we say, if we don't destroy this evil, this evil will destroy the world. But I want you to listen, many of you have heard this and I'm, I'm closing with this. When we're hearing about all these innocent civilians, you know what? If you punch me in the face, guess what? I'm punching you, kicking you, and biting you. I told you, half hood, half holy. Listen to this, this phone call from a Hamas terrorist calling the innocent civilians of his family. Listen to this. Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. 
رب نے احلی کیا رب رب نے احلی کیا رب نے احلی کیا رب اللہ اکبر اللہ اکبر وللہ الحمد اللہ اکبر وللہ الحمد the pictures of the Jews I killed. Dad, I killed them. I killed 10. I killed 10. 10 with my own hands. Their blood is on their hands. Look, Mom, Mom. Oh, may God bless you, my son. I swear, 10 with my own hands, Mother. Right, take that off. Take that off. That, that, that's not a kid calling home and saying, Dad, Dad, I scored the winning touchdown today. Dad, Dad, I made a basket and our team won. Dad, Dad, I got straight A's on my math. Dad, Dad, I'm getting a scholarship to the university. This is a demon that's calling his mom and dad and saying, you won't believe it, I'm sending you pictures. I killed 10 Jews with my own hand. Oh, God bless you, son. God bless you, son. Listen to me. When we're talking about innocent civilians, we're talking about about that 1,400 Jewish innocent civilians that were going about their day, feeding their children, hoeing their ground, going to work, and they came in and butchered them without mercy. Listen to me. This war must be won because it's not just about winning in Israel. They are in our country. They are here right now. They are walking our streets, shouting out Allah Akbar. They are shouting death to the Jews. They're in Australia saying gas the Jews. And when we talk about the spirit of Amalek, the spirit of Amalek is a spirit that says, I don't care what happens to me as long as I kill Jews. That same spirit of Amalek was on Adolf Hitler. When Adolf Hitler was in the war, they were winning it. But when he decided to go against Russia... Russia didn't defeat uh, 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 Hitler. Bullets and bombs didn't defeat Hitler. It was the cold and the starvation. When Hitler's troops were losing, his, his generals got a hold of him and said, listen, stop sending trains with Jews to the death camps. Stop sending soldiers to kill the Jews. Turn it around. Use the trains to come and bring troops, bring supplies, bring food, bring blankets to the front, and Hitler, we can win the war. And Hitler said it's in the biography Hitler said you don't understand what this war is about it's not about winning it's about killing Jews and then he said and when I'm done with the Jews I'm coming for the Christians so when we fight for Israel we are fighting for ourselves as my rabbi said we are one shoulder and that is the shoulder of Almighty God and I declare greater is he that's in us than anything that can come against us somebody ought to shout amen stand with me I'll close with this we need to speak loud and clear. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm angry at what they did to children. I'm angry that they still have children there and our president doesn't have the, the guts. He just says, we're going to send you, a, what, $100 million? Not one word about the hostages. But I'm mad at anybody that voted for him. You cannot complain about what's happening in that country and you cannot complain about what's happening in our country if you voted for administration 
that took the sanctions off Iran, and the world knows. You know, Biden said, oh, we have no proof. We have no proof. I played two weeks ago a Hamas leader saying, I want to thank Iran because without Iran, Hamas would not exist. Hamas would have no money. Hamas would have no weapons. I want, and Biden says, oh, uh, uh, we have no proof. We have no proof. Well, open your old, old eyes and look. God, get off the beach. Or maybe stay on the beach. Everybody talks about Genesis 12. And I, I bounce this off of my wife and my kids. I said, should I say this this Sunday? Because we got, we got Christians, we got Jews, we got Republicans, we got Democrats. When it comes to voting, don't you dare vote like a Republican. Don't you dare vote like a Democrat. Don't you dare vote like a Christian. Don't you dare vote like a, a Jew. You vote like a child of the living God and you vote according to good defeating evil. The same God that said Israel will become a nation. When everybody said it can't happen, it's enough. God said, if I say it's gonna happen, that same God wrote Genesis 12, three. And he says very clearly, and I think more than ever rabbis, God says, I will bless those who bless Israel, but don't stop there. I will curse those who curse Israel. And if we elect politicians that are standing with a nation that calls them little Satan and calls us big Satan, for everybody that stands with Israel, I release the blessing of God. And everybody that stands against Israel, I release the second part of the prophecy. Because I read the book, we're going to win. Let me close with this. And this really is, you know, pastors close all the time. This is my, this is my closing close. A few months ago, I woke up and I realized I was praying the Shema in my sleep. I woke up praying the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Shema Israel, Adonai And I woke up and I was like, why am I praying the Shema? Why am I praying? And I went in my office and got a cup of coffee, went in my office, and, and a teaching came on my laptop from a very, very ancient, ancient rabbi, and it says the mysteries of the Shema. And we know the Shema is Shema Israel. Hero Israel, the Lord, he is our God, the Lord is one. But this ancient, ancient rabbi and ancient Jewish wisdom says, when you say Shema Israel, hero Israel, he said, Israel is your soul. And you're saying, listen, my soul. Listen, listen my soul. Our God is the only God. He's the one. Serve him. Live for him. Do what he says to do. Listen, my soul. When we put our hands in his hand, our lives in his hands, he will show the world that he is almighty God. And when I laid that down, little did I realize that it would be just a month or so that Israel has to be fought for. So as we say, Shema Israel, listen, my soul. Israel, the land, the people, the nation, 
and Israel is every Jew around the world, we are saying, listen, soul, our souls are connected. We are grafted into the Jewish people. If they die, we die. But our God has come to give us life and that life more abundant. God bless you and God bless the nation of Israel. Would you give the Lord a clap offering as we go? Amen.